Hey, everyone. So the first Table 101 class did not get recorded, and rather than just skip it and give you the notes, which may not make that much sense, uh, we thought we'd re-record it. Um, this is uh, my wife's idea, and I thought, I feel a little silly. I'm sitting in my office uh, talking into a microphone. Um, but I think it might be valuable to have this on the record. So this is the first, this is week one of the Table 101. I'll just talk through uh, the notes that we, we talked through a little bit uh, on that day. So we have a record of it, and people can listen to it if they want to, uh, those, those sorts of things. So um, yes, this is week one. There are several books that we talked about on week one that you might be interested in. Um, one's called The Anglican Way by Thomas McKenzie. It's a good overview and introduction to Anglicanism. Uh, the second one is a book by our Bishop Todd Hunter called Giving Church Another Chance, Finding New Meaning in Spiritual Practices. We actually will give that one to you for free if you will read it. So just let us know, and we can get you a copy of that book. And uh, the third one is the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that as the course goes on, but um, the Book of Common Prayer is a pretty important book and document for Anglicans. Um, the th- uh, I can't remember what number we're up to, but uh, the Anglican Catechism. Uh, there's an Anglican Catechism called To Be a Christian, an Anglican Catechism. Um, that We're not going to go through that um, in this Table 101 course, but it's an introduction to the faith and practice, um, kind of Christian faith and practice from an Anglican perspective. And uh, if you're interested in those, you can get them for 10 bucks from us or 12 bucks online. Uh, there's a place on our website to go get that. Uh, and then finally, there is a pray. There's a book called Pray Daily that is a simplified version of the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer can be a little intimidating um, if you're just trying to find uh, some liturgies, some simple liturgies to begin to pray every day. Um, and that's going to be an encouragement that we're giving to everybody who's going through the course. Um, part of what it means to be an Anglican Christian is that you learn to pray, uh, and so we're encouraging everybody to just find a way to pray every day. Um, so some of those resources might be helpful for you. Uh, talk to us if you have questions about them. Um, good. So this is week one, the table within the landscape of Anglicanism. So we're going to do—there's tons to say here. Um, we want it to be um, conversational, but we wanted to lay out some of this information uh, at the outset so we had it uh, for, you know, for for posterity <laughs> uh, as we go forward. So— um, so we want to talk about what, like, you know, what what kind of church the table is, why we're Anglican, um, and we're going to root it in in three different phrases that I want to make sure that we uh, understand. The first phrase is rooted and contextual. The second phrase is centered set versus bounded set, and the third phrase is Latin. I think it's lex orandi, lex credendi. We'll talk about each one of those in turn. Um, but to start off, um, this is most of most of you will know this about the table. But the table is a church that is rooted in being and becoming the body of Christ. We're rooted in growing in discipleship to Jesus as a community for the sake of others. So we're not just um, we're not just a, a brand that we're trying to attract people to. We're not trying to build an organization that's successful necessarily. We actually <laughs> we actually believe we are the church, and um, we're not just as the church. We think our job is not just to learn about God, but rather in our worship and in our lives, we're seeking to encounter God. So there's a big difference between learning about God and encountering God, and we want to encounter Him and learn to live in God, live in the Trinity, live our everyday lives in 
God. And so these encounters we have with God, and this is Sunday morning, this is table groups, this is what we're learning to do in DNA groups as we learn to pay attention to what God's doing in our lives. We're learning to pay attention to God's activity in our lives, in creation, and through our lives, through creation. Um, and that, that's a big part of what we're doing. So as we encounter God, this changes us, it transforms us, and then it also benefits others. And so as we're transformed with these encounters that we have with God, we're caught up into the life of God, um, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're caught up into Trinitarian life, which drives us out into mission, because this is what God is doing. And so the desire to be with God and to live in God naturally leads us out into mission, and it brings us into worship, and those two things form like a, two sides of the same coin, a seamless whole that we, that we learn to live in. So a lot of you guys are on board with that, but why then are we Anglican? Because there is probably a way to em- embrace that kind of uh, that kind of uh, way of being the church uh, without necessarily being an Anglican. I mean, we could have liturgy, we could have candles, incense, without the hassle <laughs> of being involved with um, a global communion. Um, that and sometimes it is a hassle. Um, so you know, why are we Anglican, and what does it actually mean? Uh, so first of all, just locating the table within the landscape of Anglicanism. The table is a manifestation of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So uh, all those words mean something. One church means that there is there's not many churches. It means that God has one church on the world. Holy means that we're set apart. It means that God has um, set us apart uh, for a purpose. Uh, Catholic means universal uh, it just means uh, that we're we're part of the. It's similar to one. Uh, we're we're part of the one church, and apostolic means that um, we're part of a, a a movement of sending that goes back to Christ and the apostles. And so you know you had these disciples following Jesus around. Some of them Jesus appointed apostles who were sent ones who were who were called to bring the message um, uh, to others. And so we stand in that succession of uh, messengers and uh, people who have been ordained uh, into apostolic ministry. So the table is part is a manifestation of that one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and it's part of the global Anglican communion. Now, the global Anglican communion is about 85 million people in 165 countries made up of uh, 45 different uh, what they call provinces. Our province is called the Anglican Church in North America, our diocese, which is part of that province, is called Churches for the Sake of Others. Uh, and Churches for the Sake of Others is a diocese that is not geographically based, but it's more um, affinity-based. Uh, we are a church-planting diocese. We're concerned with a, a very specific kind of missional Anglicanism, if you will. Um, our bishop is Todd Hunter. He lives in California. Um, and uh, we're part of the—within that diocese, uh, we're part of um, a deanery, uh, which is a further subdivision, and that's um, uh, the Midwest deanery. And then within that is the is our parish, the table. And so Matt and I are priests uh, here at the table. It's called a rector. Um, we've been ordained by Todd and commissioned by him to plant this church and, and, to, um, and to lead this community. Um, kind of in in his name or in you know in the name of um, the church. Um, so within this global Anglican communion, I mean, there's 85 million people. This huge diversity in practice and posture and theology. 
Um, and so one of the things that actually attracted me to Anglicanism initially was uh, this, uh, this diversity. There was, there's an impulse within Anglicanism to, to, to stay together. Let's work this out. Let's not divide as quickly uh, as some do. Now, even that's ironic because, um, and we could, you know, ask me about this sometime if you're curious, but our, our province is actually part of a, a division that happened in the Episcopal Church um, kind of back in the 90s. And so, um, so that, there's an irony there, and then, like I said, there's, there's huge diversity here, but the impulse of Anglicanism is to stay together, is to say, well, um, we need to work this out, and so let's keep talking, uh, rather than, oh, well, we believe different things about baptism or the Eucharist, and so we have to split up and divide and create a new denomination. Um, that's the American way. Um, there are so many different denominations based on you know, disagreements about theology. Uh, but part of what we like about Anglicanism is it shares the, the same impulses as, say, Eastern, Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism, which is to say unity in the Church is actually way more important than um, purity, uh, necessarily, of, uh, of getting all of our theological I's dotted and our T's crossed. So that is kind of uh, where we're located uh, as the table. We're part of a global communion, 85 million people all over the world. Um, So Anglican Church, uh, what does that mean? Um, Anglican is just a word that means English, basically, and so the Anglican Church uh, basically just is the English Church. It's the Church of England. Um, and so where, where, we, where we get to this, we actually have to go back to Pentecost, which we celebrated a few weeks ago, but we have to go back to Pentecost because that's where the church started. The Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost, and um, the, the disciples preach uh, the gospel, and 3,000 are added to their number. It would be crazy to try to figure out how to disciple all those people. That, was, that must have been a glorious mess. Um, and, and what happens is the gospel spreads from there, and so the church spreads. And so as people go out and they continue to proclaim the gospel, as the apostles lay hands on people and begin to commission people, um, as, the, as the word of God goes out, they're baptizing people, and they're teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded, and this creates the, um, manifestations, all that, that expand from this place of Jerusalem, manifestations of the one holy apostolic and Catholic Church. And so um, this went out. This is the story of the book of Acts, obviously. Now, Christians arrived in uh, the English lands uh, or, or the British Isles maybe as early as 67 AD. It's not very long after um, the church started at, at Pentecost. Uh, and there's some theories about um, who actually came up there that maybe the, the uh, Christian faith was brought to the British Isles not by uh, Europeans, but maybe through uh, people from the Middle East. Um, because, and the, part of the reason the theory is there is that Christianity, as it grew up in the British Isles, was always distinct and different from the rest of Europe. Um, this is where, if you guys have ever heard of Celtic Christianity, um, that's where this comes from, is, is Christianity, as it took root and grew in the British Isles, it developed a pretty unique flavor that was somewhat different from the flavor uh, from the rest uh, that Christianity was taking in the rest of Europe. And so um, Celtic Christianity in the British Isles, um, you know, from, from 67 AD or whenever uh, the, the faith first came to the British Isles, all the way through like the 700s or so, um, it ha- it retained this inter- this Celtic character, which is actually more connected to the church in the East 
um, like Eastern Orthodoxy today, than it was in the Church in the West, which is maybe more manifested in like Roman Catholicism. Um, in the West, there were more uh, like legal kind of uh, metaphors for thinking about um, life under God, uh, that we had broken his law and needed um, you know, atonement for that. In the East, it was always a bit more holistic. It was always a bit more mystical. There was always a sense that um, it wasn't so much about breaking a law, but actually... Um, so in the West, the atonement was about you broke the law and you need to be punished, uh, but God you know, took your punishment. In the East, the atonement is you've drunk poison and you need a healer. And so Christ in the West came to be seen as the judge. Um, Christ in the East uh, came to be seen as the great physician, the healer. And so uh, Christianity um, in the Celtic lands, British Isles, always had a little bit different flavor, and it was closer to how Christianity uh, grew up in the East. Um, and so this Christianity evolved through a lot of immigrations, through a lot of invasions. Uh, it was led by people like St. Patrick, St. Columba, uh, St. Aidan, and others. Um, one, I mean, interesting example is St. Patrick. I mean, Patrick was a missionary, and he brought this one holy Catholic and apostolic faith church to the Irish Celts, uh, who were thought of as by barbarians at the time. Um, but um, the way that he did it was was um, really key, where he didn't force them to conform to the cultural expressions of Christianity from Rome, but rather he sort of planted a seed of faith and uh, saw it grow up in 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 this land. And so it, Anglicanism has always had this impulse of trying to create a faith uh, that is sensible for the everyday, concrete, common experiences of these people. So they, they, they made an effort not to just import the cultural expectations of Rome to say, actually, we need, you need to become Roman to become Christian. St. Patrick had the impulse to say, you know what, um, you don't need to stop being Celts. Uh, you don't need to stop being who you are. Um, let's see what the faith looks like uh, as it grows up here. And so this is that first phrase I talked about, rooted and contextual. And so St. Patrick embodied this, and I think that there's, an, there's, a, there's a manifestation of this in the Anglican Church that's very attractive uh, to us, and that, that's part of why we're Anglican, in the sense that we're rooted in the—we're not making this up, right? There, there, this is the one holy uh, Catholic apostolic Church. There's a faith that's been received, that we, like we, we've received something uh, that's ancient. We didn't make this up, but— that's the rooted part. The contextual part is this has to grow up in the, in the local soil and has to be made um, sensible for everyday, ordinary, common people. This can't be for the elite. It can't just be for a few people. This is for everybody. And so how do we make this faith, this faith that we've received, rooted, how do we make it contextual for these people? And so um, Celtic Christianity had a, had a good example of that. Um, so... Uh, Eventually, Celtic Christianity came under uh, the Bishop of Rome after there was a, a mission from a, a Benedictine monk sent by Pope Gregory to Britain in the late 6th century to sort of convert the Anglo-Saxons, and this monk reported back and said, actually, <laughs> there already there's tons of Christians here already, uh, I'm not converting anybody. Um, and so there's a Christian presence here, it's distinct from Rome, and so they, um, they eventually uh, sort of accepted some of the customs uh, uh, from Rome, uh, in the interest of unity as well. And so, um, 
and there was a lot of there was a lot of interesting uh, differences. One one that's uh, important maybe to point out is this: that in Rome, um, bishops were located in cities. So bishops. So we'll talk more about this later, but um, apostolic succession means that the apostles laid their hands on people and ordained them to apostolic ministry. And eventually what this looked like in the church, very very quickly after, after the apostles died, uh, it came to look like a threefold order of ministry of bishop, priest, and deacon. We'll talk more about those uh, later. But bishops were the representatives of the unity of the church, that bishops um, sort of guarded the faith, they maintained this faith, uh, and they um, they were all kind of—there uh, was conciliar government among bishops. They um, they all were trying to mutually submit to one another um, and discern what God was doing uh, in the midst of the, the Holy Catholic Church um, all across the world. Um, but in Rome, those bishops um, were located in cities because there were a lot of great cities uh, in Europe. Um, so great cities in Europe and Africa— um, there were cities that, that bishops lived in that people came to the bishop to celebrate uh, communion from, you know, from around the surrounding region. Uh, in the Celtic lands, there were no great cities, and so bishops didn't, didn't live in cities and people came to them. Rather, bishops took on a missionary character, so bishops uh, would travel around. They were located maybe more in like monasteries, and the bishops would be more like apostles who would go from place to place um, and then as soon as there was a critical mass of believers in any one particular area, they would set up uh, churches uh, in those areas. But it was a lot of—it it was a quite different um, expression. Um, and again, based on the, the contours of the land. There were no great cities um, in the Celtic lands, and so it didn't make sense for bishops to just sit in cities and wait for people to come to them, um, like it made more sense to do that in Rome. So, um, so key characteristics of mission— for Patrick, Patrick developed a life of worship that was not a transplant of Roman faith. Rather, he gathered people in monastic communities of worship, and from there engaged the people, eventually planting indigenous communities as people were baptized. Um, some key characteristics of this early Anglican slash Celtic spirituality: uh, there was an emphasis on holistic faith. Um, there was a firm belief that all of life is sacramental. Uh, which means that God works, God is present in and works through creation, not in opposition to creation. That's what we mean by sacramental. We'll talk more about that in week four. Um, and uh, another key characteristic of the spirituality of the Celtic lands was that they were um, organized in abbeys and monasteries around a rule of life with simple rhythms. So they had, in, in the midst of life, they had a monastic life in the midst of the culture that was going on around them. Um, and so again, these are, these are spiritual practices that characterize, not necessarily distinctive doctrines. They're spiritual practices that lived within the doctrines that uh, the whole church held. So anyway, um, a key point here is that there's a long history of spirituality in the British Isles, in, in the lands of England, that was distinct from the rest of the continent. And so it had this unique character that was different from the rest of Europe. Uh, and so in a way, the Reformation was an opportunity for England to realize what had always been true. So one of the pre... I used to think this, that Ang the Anglican Church was started by Henry VIII uh, because he had a crazy personal life and he wanted a divorce, and so he said... And the Pope wouldn't give it to him, and so he said, fine, I'm going to start my own church. That's not really what happened. 
King, I mean, Henry VIII did have a crazy personal life, and he did want a divorce, but that's not, he didn't start a church. Those events uh, were part of a larger movement that had been going on. So the, the Henry VIII's crazy personal life is not why there is a Church of England. It's just one of the things that happened in uh, the development of uh, the Church of England. So um, very briefly, and this is part of the rooted and contextual part of this, so forgive me if, it, if this is a, a long history lesson. We're, we're actually flying through this stuff, and there's more. There's very interesting stuff that you can explore uh, if you want to later. So anyway, so there's this long history of finding a life of prayer made sensible for ordinary life, for common life among the people in the British Isles. And so when the Reformation came in like the 1500s, um, it took on a different... I mean, it was, first of all, it was hugely messy. It was largely a political move. Uh, England didn't want to pay taxes to Rome anymore. Um, but those moves in the political realm um, among the, you know, the politically powerful opened up room for wrestling with these new ideas, these Protestant ideas. And so, that, again, there's a huge messy history about how this all came about, and it did involve Henry VIII wanting an annulment, um, but at its best, what it allowed the church in England to do was to take on a different character than the rest of the Protestant Reformation. Um, it allowed the Church of England to reach back to the earliest days of the church, when it was one holy apostolic Catholic church, to reach back and say, like, how can we reclaim the faith and order of the early undivided church under Scripture? Um, and that's what they were seeking to do at their best, again. Um, and so the Church of England, um, this is kind of the impulse of the Church of England, and, and why they called it the Church of England is, is because they were reaching back and saying, actually, we're not trying to create a new church, we're not creating anything new at all. In fact, we're going back to reclaim these old things. We're, we're going back to reclaim the church as it was in before the, the division uh, of East and West in 1054. And so we're going back to say, what, what was the church like in its, in its earliest days? And, and what they ended up uh, claiming um, was one holy and apostolic faith. Oh, let me, uh, I'm going to talk about that later. Never mind. So, uh, so they, they, they reached back and, and tried to reclaim that early faith and order of the early undivided church under Scripture. Um, now, the Church of England became a more official thing after Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He helped Elizabeth I establish some common practices. Uh, he created a prayer book so that people could pray um, in, in their own language. And so the Anglican Church then was the Church of England, and it basically spread throughout the world as the British Empire spread. And so wherever the British Empire went, the Anglican Church went as well. Um, to, to the extent that actually um, in all the lands where um, the British Empire went, and eventually the British Empire left, but the Anglican Church remained, so now most Anglicans are not white. Uh, most of them don't speak English as their first language, uh, which is kind of a funny uh, irony to me. Um, there's tons of them in Africa, um, for example. So... Um, Rooted and contextual, that's the first point, uh, I guess, to get across. The long history of Christianity on the British Isles was one of contextualized Catholicism. And when I say Catholicism, I just mean one church, uh, the, the way the church uh, kind of was one from the initial days. I don't mean Roman Catholicism, necessarily. 
So uh, it was contextualized Catholicism connected to the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith, but was able to find a life of prayer that was made sensible for ordinary people living ordinary lives in the Celtic lands. Okay? So the gift, this is part of then the gift of Anglicanism, that that the heart of Anglicanism is this life of prayer. Uh, It's a liturgy grounded in the uh, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ revealed in Holy Scripture and passed down through the Church, and then made sensible for our everyday, ordinary lives. The interesting thing about the Anglican Church is that there's no, we don't have a pet theology or a pet theologian. Uh, we're not defined by a certain catechism, necessarily. We do have something called the 39 Articles, um, but that, that, that's not really, there's nothing really distinct about it. The 39 Articles were an attempt to Again, go back to the faith and order of the early undivided church under Scripture. Um, and so the, the gift, then, um, that Anglicanism is, is that we don't have distinctive doctrines, necessarily, or, or beliefs, but we have a distinctive way of prayer. Um, it, it, the gift of, that this gives us is that it prioritizes the how over the what. So instead of asking, what do you believe, Anglicans are more concerned with how we pray and what we're doing when we're uh, living our ordinary, actual lives, how, how we live out Jesus' lordship in, in our ordinary lives. Um, it's not about how we've figured out God, but how we're learning to yield to God's prior action and come to an understanding of how to live in his kingdom as his citizens. And so this is why the Book of Common Prayer is a key document. It's not the Book of Common Belief. It's not uh, the Book of Distinctive Anglican Things That We Believe— it's the Book of Common Prayer, which is, make, which is trying to help people enter into a life of daily prayer. Um, and so it's, it's uh, rooted and contextual. Now, here we're going to talk about centered set, bounded set. So uh, a bounded set—this is a sociological category—but a bounded set is, means that you're in or out based on whether you've crossed the boundary— and so those boundaries are typically, uh, for churches, are, are certain kinds of beliefs. You have to have a, this, you have to affirm this belief, and then you're in, uh, but then there's not much past that. A centered set, by contrast, um, the boundary is a little bit more fuzzy. Well, are you in or you out? Well, it's, not, it's less important whether you're in or you're out, and more important whether you're oriented toward the center or you're oriented away from the center. So it's about where are you moving. Are you moving toward the center, or are you moving away from the center? Um, less about where you're positioned, and more about your orientation and where you're going. And so uh, Anglicanism, in a way, is it doesn't have distinctive theology or dogma. Um, it's more it's kind of like a mere Christianity. Um, it was created by people trying to live a middle way, so to speak, or a third way, between the extremes in their day of. Roman Catholicism, which in their view was adding things to the one holy and apostolic Catholic faith, uh, and then the Protestants, the more extreme Protestants of the day, who were, in their view, subtracting. They were taking things away, kind of in an overreaction against uh, the Roman uh, Catholics. And so th- there was an attempt to return to this faith and order of the early undivided church without the additions of Rome or the deletions of Protestantism. And this is why it's called a mere Christianity. It's a centered set. We're just trying to be Catholic, so to speak, under Scripture and tradition, uh, the patristic church. Kind of how, did, how did the church form in its earliest days? Again, a contextualized Catholicism. And so the, the centered set that they went for uh, was these four things. Um, and this is something called the Lambeth Quadrilateral, if you're interested in looking it up. <laughs> 
um, the centered set was, number one, one faith, um, which was the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, as expressed through the creeds and councils of the early church. And so that one faith um, can be encapsulated with the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, uh, which are ultimately expressions of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then the councils of uh, the earliest church. Um, so that's the first thing, one faith. Um, <clears throat> the second thing is one canon of Scripture. Canon is a word that just means uh, list or rule, um, has quite a few different meanings. But what it means is, like, what, 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 is our, what are our Scriptures? And they have decided these are the 27 books of the New Testament, the, you know, 60-some books of the Old Testament— um, the canon of Scripture as accepted by the early Church, um, which is an interesting thing uh, to think about, that, uh, you know, the, Jesus didn't sort of give the disciples a list of books, hey, eventually these books are going to be written, um, those are the Scriptures, <laughs> right? Um, that things were written, and the Church eventually uh, discerned that these things were Scripture, that God was speaking through these documents. It's a fascinating story. So, that, okay, so number one, one faith. Number two, one canon of Scripture— this is the centered set. Number three, one sacramental life, which means that, the, that we live as the Church uh, within the real presence of Christ in baptism and communion as the, uh, as the sacraments of the Church. Now, um, we'll talk more about this when we get to uh, week four, when we talk about sacraments, but there are other things that the Anglican Church looks at as sacramental rites or sacramental actions that aren't quite as important um, as the Lord's Supper and communion, or sorry, the communion and baptism, but still nevertheless convey grace. The important part here is that we believe that the real presence of Christ is, uh, is conveyed in baptism and communion. God does something in these things, we're not just doing something in these things. Uh, so that's the third thing. The fourth thing is one apostolic ministry, um, bishop, threefold apostolic ministry of bishops, priests, and deacons, ordained by bishops, going back to Christ and the apostles. Okay? So that's the centered set. The third thing to talk about is uh, lex orandi, lex credendi, and then maybe by extension, lex vivendi. So what does that mean? Um, Lex orandi, lex credendi means the law of praying is the law of believing. The law of praying is the law of believing, or the rule of praying uh, leads to the, the rule of believing. And essentially what it refers to is that um, our life of prayer, our worship, our devotion, our liturgy, gives way to what we believe. We start with prayer, and we learn what we believe as we pray. And then as we learn what we believe as we pray, we learn how to live, how to live that out. And that's that last part, lex vivendi. So the rule of prayer leads to the rule of belief, leads to the rule of um, living. How, how we live it out. So I, I hope that makes sense. It, it's not that we decide what we believe and then we learn about uh, what we believe when we come to worship. No, it's that we submit to a liturgy of prayer. We learn how to pray. We learn how to encounter God in prayer and worship, and that leads us into what we believe. We learn what we believe as we pray. And so prayer leads to belief, which leads to living. So liturgy leads to theology. Not the other way around, necessarily, although they, they do inform each other. Um, so how do we know what we know? Well, we pray. We don't just read it in a book. We don't just come up with it on our own. We pray. And so um, Anselm said that we worship in order to know. 
And so Anglicans, it's a very Anglican thing, for example, to say, you know, hey, what, what do you believe? And for an Anglican to say, well, <laughs> come worship with us. Come pray with us. Um, you'll find out what we believe. And I'll, find, I'll, I'll be learning what I believe as I pray. Um, and the, the reason I like this is this is how the early church lived. Uh, they met together to celebrate the gospel by hearing the scriptures and sharing communion. Um, and they, they only ended up defining their beliefs about the Trinity and about sacraments and about who God is and all of that kind of stuff. They only ended up defining those things after they were forced to because, you know, there were heretics around. People started saying other things, and they thought, you know, that doesn't sound quite right. We need to kind of sort out what it is that we believe here. And so um, this is how the early church lived. They met together. They, they celebrated the gospel um, and they, they, they were forced to define their beliefs by, because there were heresies around. But um, this is really attractive to me, <laughs> and I hope it is to you, uh, that essentially their concern— for, so, for example, their concern about the Trinity was not how do we correctly define the Trinity. Their concern about the Trinity was how do we live in the Trinity? How do we encounter God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How do we continue to live this life out? How do we participate in the divine nature that was their concern, um, and uh, only secondarily was their concern, how do we correctly articulate what we believe about this? And they only really knew how to correctly articulate what they believed about it because they had been worshiping, they had been participating in divine life, and that's how they knew that heresy was kind of sounded off, was like, well, that doesn't sound, doesn't sound like what we experience when we encounter God uh, at the table. So, um, Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, it describes, number one, how Anglicanism was formed. This was basically a liturgical experiment um, in praying in English. Um, And so, um, it describes how how Anglicanism was formed. We didn't come up with a bunch of beliefs. We came up with a way of prayer and then learned kind of what we believe uh, on the back end of that. Uh, number two, this Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, it, descri- it, it, it describes what we prioritize in our life together. So we're less concerned about uh, meticulously identifying everything that we believe and don't believe, and we're more concerned that we come together to worship. Uh, prayer matters more than belief, if, if I can put it that way. Uh, and so, and number three, it describes how we order our lives. We order our lives around daily prayer and weekly Eucharist. Um, this is a, this, you know, it's not enough to know, oh yeah, I got the, I memorized the Apostles' Creed, so I know what I believe. No, we actually prioritize prayer and worship over those things, which means even though I've memorized, I can memorize the whole liturgy, and I still come back week after week to receive the, the Eucharist, uh, to participate in prayer. And so um, that's part of why uh, we're encouraging everyone to find a way to pray every day. Um, because the way that we organize our lives as Anglicans is around come to worship on Sunday, receive the Eucharist, hear the gospel proclaimed. Um, this isn't you learning about God. This is you encountering God. Why would you want to go a week without this? <laughs> uh, and then it's learning to encounter God in daily prayer. Um, so daily prayer, weekly Eucharist, Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi. Um, this is part of the character of Anglicanism. We major on articulating what it means to worship in concrete life rather than on secondary speculative theological issues. This is another thing I like about Anglicanism is that um, if it doesn't seem clear from Scripture, we don't find a need to comment on it. 
I once heard an Anglican priest uh, talking about how he was uh, arguing with some Presbyterians. You know, apologies to any Presbyterians listening. Uh, but they were talking about free will versus predestination and Calvinism and all this other kind of stuff. And they, you know, they asked the Anglican priest what he thought about it. And he just said, I just don't have any comment on it because you guys, you, you guys are way beyond where Scripture is clear. And so it, it might be an interesting philosophical um, discussion, but uh, it's dangerous to try to root a theology in an overly meticulous definition of how free will and God's sovereignty works together. Uh, that, that's actually a, a, a troublesome thing that, that actually gets us into trouble. So I, uh, I appreciate that about Anglicanism, is that there's an emphasis on how do we make prayer in concrete life sensible and doable, rather than, uh, here's what we believe about this speculative theological issue. So, why is this important? Uh, This is important because of who God is. God, we don't grasp God rationally. We don't understand Him rationally. Rather, we are grasped by God. And that means that both the starting point and the way forward is liturgical response. It's responding to this God in worship and prayer. So, we encounter in order to embody and extend. That's part of the vision of the, pr- of the table, is that um, we are here to encounter, embody, and extend the presence of Christ in the Indianapolis area. So it's important because of who God is. This, God isn't somebody we grasp intellectually and rationally. God is someone who grasps us um, with our whole self, um, and, and we do that in worship and in prayer. We submit ourselves to that. Um, so it's important because of who God is, and it's also important because of who we are, um, that uh, the Enlightenment has convinced us that we are brains on a stick, uh, that we're essentially a, a collection of ideas that travels around uh, in a body um, but doesn't necessarily need to. Um, but that's not actually who we are. We're, we are all liturgical beings. We're all worshiping something. We're giving ourselves over to something all the time. All the time. We can't not give ourselves over to worshiping something. And our habits and our practices reveal that, and they also shape that. It forms this kind of cycle, uh, this symbiotic relationship. Our habits and practices both reveal what's important to us and what we love, what we desire, uh, and then our habits and practices also shape what we love, what we desire, um, and, and kind of what, we're, what our hearts are longing for. And so that, that can be a virtuous cycle if we're involved in things that... Um, that will truly fulfill us, um, and, you know, like worship and prayer, um, encountering God. Uh, and it can also be a vicious cycle if we start to get involved in things that um, we start desiring that are actually not good for us. Um, and, you know, this, can, this is the basic definition of idolatry, I guess. Um, so how does this apply? Uh, number one, it makes us liturgical, both our corporate worship and also our daily life. Um, is liturgical. And what we don't mean just like that means we, you know, we have incense or, or that we read prayers, but it means that we're worshiping beings. It means that our, our daily life and our corporate worship are all uh, liturgical. We're responding to God in a way. Uh, number two, it gives attention to practice, how we actually live, not just what we believe. Um, and also we recognize that we can't do this on our own or make it up willy-nilly. We receive the faith, and we need to trust those wiser than ourselves to teach us how to pray. That's a big uh, reason I like Anglicanism as well, is that um, 
it, it, it acknowledges that, that we learn how to pray as we pray, and, as, and we learn how to pray from submitting to prayers uh, that were written by people who are wiser than ourselves. We, sub, we submit to the prayers of the Church. Uh, we submit to 2,000 years of, of the Church learning to pray and saying, this, this is a formative, shaping way of worship and prayer, so submit to it and find out what happens in your life. So we receive those things, we submit to those things, we don't just make things up. Uh, that's not what Christianity is, um, which is not normally what we want to hear. Um, I went to uh, last weekend. Went to you know graduation, high school graduation, and uh, it seems like the the basic message of most Hollywood movies and most <laughs> graduation speeches is, you know, believe in yourself, be true to yourself, um, and I think there's some good in that. Um, you know, it's not necessarily all bad, but but if that's the, if that's your telos, if that's your endpoint, uh, just believe in yourself, just kind of. Uh, you know, <laughs> hopefully you find something in there that's uh, that's worth living for. Um, it doesn't end uh, in good places. So, so anyway, uh, those three things are what we wanted to talk about this first day: rooted and contextual. So, week one is about rooted and contextual. This week one uh, course was about um, uh, was about uh, being a centered set versus a bounded set, and. Um, it was also about Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a picture as to how the table is situated within the larger Anglican world, why we are an Anglican church, what, what it is about Anglicanism that's attractive to us, and, and how it um, ends up uh, kind of fulfilling our desire to be rooted and contextual, uh, to learn a life of prayer that gives way to belief, uh, and to operate in a centered set versus a bounded set. So next week, or the next uh, class, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about something called the Compass Rose, and uh, it names a little bit of how uh, Anglicanism sought to be a, a middle way, uh, what they call a via media, a middle way or a third way between extremes um, that allows us to have a faith that uh, is able to be lived out. And then uh, the, the week after that, we'll talk a little bit about how how that applies then in our current cultural moment. Um, we've got sexuality issues uh, that are coming up, uh, gender and sexuality. Uh, how does it apply when we think about race and systemic violence and systemic uh, injustice? How does it apply when we think about um, other hot-button issues of our day, like maybe violence uh, and nonviolence, uh, all of that kind of thing? So we're going we're gonna to get right into it, uh, and then we'll continue uh, by talking about sacraments, um, vision and practices, our worship, our discipleship, our mission, and the way we lead at the table. Looking forward to it. Um, I'll leave you with this reflection question. Because this whole first session was about, um, was about practice, it's about um, learning to pray, it's about our habits and our practices and how they shape and form us, maybe a reflection question to go away with is, if you examined your daily habits, your daily practices— what would it reveal about what you love, about what's important to you? And also, because our daily habits and practices shape us, can you discern how the things that you do every day, habitually, uh, are shaping and forming you as a person? So a couple things to think about. Um, that's how we think about worship. It's something that reveals what we love, but also uh, is something that shapes how we love and the kind of people, the kind of people we become. All right. Well, we'll see you next time. Uh, hopefully, the recording will work, and we'll have actually have a recording of a live class rather than me sitting in my office recording it. Um, cheers. <laughs>